Hello and welcome to Note Up number 104. This is another Note Up in our one-on-one series. So last time we did Brian LaRue and I'd encourage you to go and have a listen to that if you haven't already. And this week we have Feroz. So I'm Rod Vag. I work with NodeSource on the Node TSC and work on the Node Core project. And I like to chat to devs. So today we're going to be talking to Feroz. You will know as his name by his name Feroz on Twitter and GitHub. And I'm not going to pronounce his surname because I'm going to introduce him by getting him to tell us how we should pronounce his surname because I've heard it butchered a lot and I bet he has too. So Ross, why don't you introduce yourself, tell us how to pronounce your name and, and, and tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So you say my last name, Abu Khadija. And the way to remember that is book a DJ. Like you're going to do a party and you need to book the DJ for the party. So Ross Abu Khadija. But it's totally fine if you don't me- if you don't say my last name. It's it's I'm used to it actually. When I when I graduated from from high school, they didn't even say my last name when I went up on stage. <laughs> so it's fine. I, last time I heard somebody butcher your name, I passed on that handy hint, and it always gets a laugh. But uh, it, it seems to work well. Today's show is sponsored by DigitalOcean. So for us, let's learn a bit about you, where you came from, what you've been involved in. Tell us about your journey into computer science and, and Node specifically? Yeah, so I started programming in high school, and I, I learned PHP to begin with. I wanted to build a website kind of like eBombs World or Addicting Games, <laughs> just a site to put games and flash animations and host all my favorite stuff, and so that was kind of my impetus for uh, getting into that. I think probably people who were on the internet in the early 2000s would remember that, like, that those sites were pretty popular, at least for for kids my age at the time. So I made a site. It was called Free the Flash, and it just hosted a bunch of silly stuff. Probably the worst code you've ever seen. <laughs> I remember I didn't even know how to how to make a function. So when I wanted to do something like multiple times, I would just copy paste like the thirty lines that I needed over and over again. But then from there, I I went on to building a few other websites. And then I went to college, uh, went to Stanford, and studied CS there. And I kind of always knew I was going to study CS. It was really great because one of, the, one of the things about the Stanford CS department that's awesome is they really focus on teaching well, and they don't try to weed people out or scare people off. It's very, the goal is to be very accessible, and they do that in a number of ways. They have undergraduates who help to teach like three times a week with, along with the professors, lectures, and they have a grading system that's really nice where they'll, they'll kind of give everybody an A if everybody actually learns this stuff. So there's not this competition between people. So it's, it's a really great experience. I'm, I'm really glad I went through that. And then kind of how I ended up in Node was one of the websites that I made back in high school was getting a little bit of traffic. I was looking, looking at it and thinking maybe I should kind of revamp the website. It was a a little site to help high school students study for their advanced placement courses, which is a really popular type of class that students in the United States take. And I had just basically posted my own notes from high school onto a, a site. So I thought, like, well, I should improve this, make it modern, redesign it all. And I, I heard about Node at the time. I thought it would be cool to, to learn it. And at the time, every website I had ever built was basically in a different framework, like everything from Rails to, like, Flask to, like, Python, like Tornado, some PHP stuff, and then uh, so I figured, okay, well, let's just try Node now. And I hadn't really found a language that was like, you know, something I felt at home in, something that, you know, I would just reach to automatically. So I was, you know, still learning everything from scratch, constantly referring to the docs. But at the end of a, of a couple of months of, of, of playing around with, with Node, I had I'd basically built a, a little website with Express and kind of relaunched that website on, on Node. And that's kind of how, how I first got involved. I hadn't really adopted any of the, or learned that much about the Node philosophy, the Node way of doing things. So it was just kind of a mess, but it was, it was really fun. Yeah, and then it just kind of kept doing more Node things from there. One of the ways I first knew about you was hearing about, learning about PSEDN, which uh, eventually got, uh, you, you got acquired by Yahoo. Do you want to tell us a bit about the PSEDN project? It wasn't just you, I believe. You, you, you had a, a couple of others working on that. Do you want to tell us a bit about how that worked and how that went down? So one of the things I liked to do while I was in college was 
trying to figure out like security issues with the browser. And so I was playing around with a lot of different like little hacks at the time. I figured out a way to make a web page that could turn on your webcam without you realizing it because of a bug in Adobe Flash. That was just one of a number of other, of other hacks I did. I, fa- I found one thing that let you like make a website that could fill up your entire disk just by visiting the page without any user interaction. And so I was kind of like, I found security really cool. I, I, I went to like some security conf, I went to DEF CON once and, and I was just kind of in that scene. And so I like to basically try to find things that surprise people about the way that their computer works. Oh yeah, that reminds me, another, another really great one was back before HTTPS became a more common thing on websites, you know, mo- most sites, even sites that, that, that were kind of sensitive and that, that had user login, sites like Facebook would, would, wouldn't even be over HTTPS. So you could actually, just by watching the traffic on the network, you could pick up someone's Facebook cookie or whatever site they were logged into, and you could basically like be them. And there was a, there was a thing that at the time that came out, it was called Firesheep, I think, that was... Uh, demoing that showed that showed this to everybody it was a, it was like a kind of a, a big deal at the time but so after that came out some friends and I decided to make a little thing that would basically give you a news feed of what was going on on your network so we went to like a hackathon that was being hosted by the CS club at Stanford and we built a little demo of basically like all the links that people were viewing on the network so if somebody visited a wikipedia page that would show up like in real time on this little app we had built it was basically just listening to the raw Wi-Fi packets on the network. That's hilarious. Did, did you show usernames and passwords too? No, we didn't. <laughs> we didn't do that. It, it was just it was basically basically just the HTTP pages that people were visiting. And if it was a YouTube video, we would like embed it into the feed for you. So, <laughs> but we didn't we didn't do the login thing because that was already done by FireSheep. So we wanted to just show people like it's not just logins. It's actually everything you do is visible to the people on your network if you're if you're not browsing over HTTPS. And so I think that surprised a lot of people. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be a good application on the public Wi-Fi net, network to show off. Go to your local right. McDonald's and fire that up. Right, right. I mean, that'd be really eye-opening for a lot of people, I think. And our Wi-Fi network at college was, was completely open, so it, it had this problem, for sure. I guess this is all a long way of saying that I was looking for... Uh, I was actually thinking it would be kind of cool to to try and build a way to distribute uh, like computational work to people's browsers. And that, and that's because that's a very surprising thing that people might not think possible. And what I mean by that is like, let's say I'm a researcher and I want to do some kind of number crunching and I would normally use like Amazon EC2 or something like that, some, some cloud servers or DigitalOcean or, or whatever for that. But that's, that's expensive. You know, it costs some money. It's not $0. It's not free. But if there was some way to, to take advantage of all of the website users, like all the users who are on certain websites and basically have the, their unused CPU cycles spin for, for some, you know, some productive use instead of just sitting there in a way that wouldn't affect the user's like browsing experience, then that could be a potentially a source of additional revenue for the site. And maybe they would be able to remove some ads or just, you know, get rid of, make their website a little bit more usable because they might be able to make a little bit of money by kind of, using their user CPUs. I don't know if that's a good idea. It's probably, it's actually a really bad idea uh, for a number of reasons. Probably the most, most obvious reason is that JavaScript at that time was kind of slow and you couldn't really do computation on the GPU, which is probably what you would want for a lot of these researchy tasks. That kind of led me into thinking about, well, okay, if I can't use CPU, maybe I can use people's other resources, like maybe their bandwidth is another option. So then I, I, that basically made me discover WebRTC, which is a way to do peer-to-peer networking in the browser. And so that was kind of like, that, that was kind of the start of the idea of basically creating a content delivery network or CDN that is powered by everybody's browsers. So everybody on a, on, a, on a web page could be all connected to each other and could be sharing the site's assets in a safe way with each other in a way that makes it cheaper for the site owner to run their site potentially enables lots of new applications that we, we haven't thought of yet to be built. So did you get did you get much traction for, for PSEDN when you put that together? We ended up getting around 1,500 people to put it onto their webpage. But only out of all those, it was only about 50 people who really had like a decently serious amount of traffic coming to their site. The rest of the people were kind of like enthusiasts who were, or just people who thought the idea was cool and wanted to try it out. But they put it on their like little blog that got, you know, a couple page views a month or something. So it wasn't really, it wasn't really 
there was no point, basically, for them to be using PureCDN. We were thinking it would be more used by people who have a lot of video that they're hosting and, and you know, want to reduce the cost of hosting that by offloading some of that, that hosting to their, to their visitors. But yeah, we never really got any like big sites to use it. So that was kind of, you know, after like eight months of working on this idea, we were kind of thinking like maybe we should go and do something else. And right at that time, we were actually approached by Yahoo to acquire the company. And so it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. And it kind of worked out nicely for, for the three of us who were, you know, working on it. It didn't work out so nicely for PSCD in itself, though, did it? Because you didn't really get to expand much on that work. I wonder, do you think that that, that was an idea that was too early for its time and that maybe we'll see us ourselves return to that in the future for the internet? Or do you think it's just just not a model that's going to get traction with the way that we that the internet works? Oh, that's a great question. I think it's definitely an interesting model that we're probably going to see return. I think that doing it with WebRTC has some limitations that probably, you know, didn't help PureCDN. So at the time, it was really a new technology and kind of, like, I remember, I remember having to debug, like, Chrome seg faults by, like, downloading the Chrome source code and looking at the stack traces and, like, finding what line in, in the in the Chromium code base was causing causing the entire browser to crash. Yeah, because um, we're, and, we're talking about the beginning of, of WebRTC days, aren't we? Like, right at the yes. beginning. Yes, that's right, yeah, and... And so it was kind of immature. It's it's still there's still like serious performance issues that are getting fixed like in each release of Chrome and Firefox. So it's like pretty, you know, it, it, that could have that could have been part of part of the reason. Um, I also think that doing it in the browser is fundamentally kind of hacky. So one of the things we did at PeerCDN was we needed to be able to prevent all the resources on the page from loading in the normal manner that the that the browser wants to load them in. So if you have an image in the page and you want to load this over a peer to peer network instead of from over HTTP you have to prevent the browser from fetching the image in the normal way. And if you want to be able to like, have PeerCDN be really simple for the user to put on their site, you know, and you want it to just be a script tag that they can add to the page, and you don't want them to have to modify all, of their, all the images and all the, like, all the tags on their site, then you need to be able to intercept the, the request and prevent it. And at the time, there, were no, there was no such thing as Service Worker, which is a, the new, you know, the, a modern way to, to actually do this without hacks in, in browsers. So we actually used this really, really hacky approach. It's kind of hilarious, actually, that involved inserting a tag called plain text, an HTML tag called plain text, which is like not documented anywhere, as far as I, I can tell. If you put a plain text tag, you know, open bracket, plain text, closing, closing angle bracket, at the top of a page or you insert it with JavaScript in a synchronous way, then you actually make the rest of the HTML on the page not render as HTML. It's treated as literally as text that just shows up on the page. So we would put this at the top of people's pages uh, with JavaScript and prevent the normal loading of the page. Then we would parse out all the URLs that we needed to get over, <laughs> over peer-to-peer with a, regular exp- with a bunch of regular expressions. And then we would, we would also style the page to not show that the HTML, otherwise you'd see that literally the source code of the page as the page is loading, so we would make that not visible. And then, last step, we would inject it all back into the page with the, with the source, you know, the source, ta- the source attribute on the image tag removed, so that it th- wouldn't load normally until we had gotten it over peer-to-peer, at which point we would then set it again. So it was like super hacky and, and kind of actually interfered with some of the, the things the browser does to make your site performant. Because the browser does a lot of things these days to make sites load fast, like this thing called speculative parsing, which is where they'll actually have two parsers that are parsing the HTML of your page, one that's properly parsing it, parsing it in order to display it to you, and then another one that's called a speculative parser that goes ahead of the normal parser is much faster, and it can pull out all the different things that look like HTTP resources, and it will actually start firing off requests to get those resources even before the actual real parser has gotten to them so that they're already there by the time it gets there. What we were doing was totally interfering with that. But now with Service Worker, you know, you can actually do it in a non-hacky way. I don't know. I, I think this could come back, especially with, with regards to, like, video hosting and, like, live streaming events. Because, like, every time there's a live stream, you always see it fall over. And, you know, with millions of people watching a live stream. So I think that peer-to-peer is probably going to be part of, like, the way that we end up scaling those kinds of services. And so WebRTC is probably going to play a role there. And then there's also other projects, like... IPFS and like Tahoe LAFS, which are projects in the in the decentralized web space, which involve some of these same techniques that PeerCDN used, 
but are more that are more lower level and happen at a more fundamental level if that makes sense like they're not part of they're not like like living in the existing web browser they're kind of like entirely new things that you would need like a new a new browser a new a new web basically to in order to to access but they're using some of these same ideas of like peer, of hosting stuff in a peer to peer way you know so and so on and so forth does that make sense <laughs> it does. I, I mean, that that kind of hack is it's pretty epic hack to get that working the plain text tag. But it does, it does remind me of so much of the of what else goes on on the web and has been going on for years as we sort of push the limits of this this browser platform and, and make it do things that it wasn't supposed to do. That then set, sets the stage for new functionality that's built into the browsers. So it seems like it's perfectly reasonable in terms of evolution of the browser platform. Like I don't want you to give away. I don't want you to tell us too much gossip or anything like that with regard to Yahoo, but just interested in your story there, what you learned at Yahoo and, you know, you've moved on since then. So what was that journey like going into Yahoo and, and, and doing a bit of work there? Yahoo told us when they acquired Pusidian that they wanted us to, first of all, focus on improving the video player of the, of all of the Yahoo properties. And then once we got it to a point where it was using modern technologies like, you know, HTML5 video and media source for adaptive streaming, you know, you know, when you see a stream that changes quality in the middle of the stream, that's called adaptive streaming. So we basically needed to get the, the, the Yahoo player in a state where it supported these modern technologies. And then at that point, we'd be able to kind of look at integrating some of the pure CDN technology as a next step in the evolution of the Yahoo video player. And so that's what we focused on while we were there. We basically spent like three to six months rewriting, basically writing a brand new video player that was like really small and minimalist using modern things like Browserify to actually bundle it all together instead of YUI, which is Yahoo's kind of old, huge framework for front-end JavaScript development that they use in the past. And so we were actually able to take the video player from this, this multi-hundred kilobyte large uh, code base into something that was less than 30 kilobytes and that didn't require a flash to be loaded. So f- the flash, the flash SWF file was itself another few hundred kilobytes. So the whole the whole player just took like you know tens of seconds to load on mobile devices, especially low end Android devices. And so we did a lot of, it, of good work there to make that fast and to reduce the error rate of of their player because at the time the error rate was really high. It was you know in the few percent percents of errors you know when trying to play video and we got that down to under under percent if i'm remembering correctly yeah that was just kind of an interesting experience there's definitely good work happening at yahoo at the time but you know a lot of a lot of difficulties too you know trying to turn around a a company at such a late stage it was interesting yeah i'm I'm sure it was a a helpful learning experience regardless of of um, what what went on and how, how it went down yeah, yeah. We never actually got around to the part where we were going to integrate Pure CDN, which is a little bit disappointing. So I don't really know what the state of that is there, because we've all since left. I don't know if that'll ever if they'll ever use that. I don't know. They ha- they kind of have other problems I think right now with the video stuff they're doing. So they probably want to fix those first. <laughs> okay. Well, we might take a break and hear from our our sponsor for today's podcast. DigitalOcean is the best place to get your application off the ground quickly and the easiest to scale when you find success. Start with the pre-configured Node.js one-click to get up and running in 55 seconds, or build the exact infrastructure you need with root access to servers running 100% SSDs in state-of-the-art data centers around the world. Scale your infrastructure using advanced features like floating IPs for high availability, private networking, and API access for automated deployments. DigitalOcean is the fastest-growing cloud infrastructure provider because it's built for developers and laser-focused on its mission to create simple and elegant solutions for developers and teams. Visit DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code NOTEUP on the billing page for a $10 credit to get started today. Okay, so for us, let's talk about uh, WebTorrent. I notice you've been formalizing that project recently with an LLC. Can you tell us a bit about that project, where it came from, and what you're hoping to do with it, and maybe a bit about this LLC that you have now under, with it under its name? WebTorrent actually has some similarities to PeerCDN and, and that idea. It was something I started right before Yahoo acquired PeerCDN. And the idea was to take some of the ideas of PeerCDN and you know the idea of making a, a peer-to-peer network, a file sharing network that works in the browser, but to do it using the existing torrent protocol. Because BitTorrent is actually the most widely deployed peer-to-peer network in existence today. 
it's it's absolutely huge, and it's the most successful example of like a peer-to-peer -peer technology, even more successful than than Bitcoin in terms of of the number of nodes participating at any given time. I've always been interested in peer-to-peer in -peer systems, and so it seemed like uh, that I had the right skills to kind of make something happen here with regards to like getting torrents to work in the browser, because I didn't think it was something that was going to happen in a reasonable amount of time unless I made it happen. So yeah, I, I, I was actually there was actually a a talk by Bram Cohen, the inventor of BitTorrent at at Stanford, and I went and attended it. And he was talking at the time about some of the stuff he, he's working on now. And I, I remember raising my hand and asking him a question at the very end. And I, I asked him if he had heard of WebRTC and he had any plans to make BitTorrent work in the browser so that browsers could be equal peers to all the existing torrent programs that people have installed on their computers. And he hadn't really heard of WebRTC. From the people I talked to at BitTorrent, it didn't sound like it was on their immediate roadmap because there's there's not there's not really a way for them to to, to profit off of because BitTorrent Inc is actually a for-profit company. There's no actual way for them to profit off of a torrent client in the browser in an obvious way because right now they make almost all their revenue from ads in the uTorrent program, ads that are built into the desktop client that people install. And so I don't know. I just didn't see it happening anytime soon, and I thought it would be really cool. And I knew a lot about WebRTC, and I was now working at, you know full time at Yahoo, and so I just had like time after work to to work on this little side project of a, of a thing, which was WebTorrent. I yeah, basically spent several months building it out, and I tried to do it in the Node way as much as possible. So everything was a, was a module, small module, and every component of the Torrent client was its own module with its own readme and its own tests. So I just like learned a lot about, about Node and NPM and how to do things like you know the quote-unquote right way while working on WebTorrent. And, and you've, you've collaborated with a bunch of other people on these modules, haven't you? And, and and I, I see them showing up again and again, both yours and, and Maffintosh's one, ones particularly, about um, using some of the underlying protocol and like some of the components are actually useful in completely different kinds of areas, aren't they? Yes, yes, that's totally right. The big pieces of a torrent client, there's a a need to be able to talk to the the other peer on the other the other end of the connection. So there's a module for that that's a stream that represents like a remote peer and you can call little methods on it and it'll send the right data over the wire so that you can talk to the peer and like interact with it. It's kind of like an RPC thing. There's another module for talking to BitTorrent trackers and finding out about peers that have the file that you're interested in. There's another module for talking to the BitTorrent DHT which is a big distributed key value store that every single Torrent client in the world is part of and uh, that also lets you find peers in the system. There's another module for parsing torrent files, creating torrent files, uh, and so on and so forth. Mathintosh, you know, um, uh, actually was doing torrent stuff before me in Node, and he had done a bunch of stuff. We basically worked together to create these these modules, and both his program, PureFlix, and WebTorrent actually use like 90% the same modules. And that's really, really cool because... Whenever a bug is fixed by somebody who's using PeerFlix, then WebTorrent gets that bug fix for free, and vice versa. And now there's actually a bunch of people who are owners of, the, of, of those modules as well, people who are using them in, in crazy ways that aren't even related to torrents. They also fix bugs and improve it. And so we all kind of benefit from sharing this foundation of, of core modules, torrent-related modules. One of the most interesting ways I've seen these modules used is actually by this module called Discovery Channel which is, was written by, I think, Max and Maffintosh, Max Ogden and Maffintosh. It lets you basically find peers in a peer-to-peer in -peer system using every single possible discovery mechanism that they could think of. And so it'll try to find peers by using multicast DNS on your local network, by using Bluetooth, by using the BitTorrent DHT. If you're building a peer-to-peer -peer application, you can actually just use Discovery Channel, and you basically identify you know, who you want to talk to or the the group of peers that you're interested in with any identifier that you come up with, like any kind of string that you come up with. But then it will actually use all these different mechanisms, including including BitTorrent nodes that are out there today that are just people who are just torrenting. You'll actually be using their computer and their part of their key value store to actually find peers for your application that's not even related to torrents at all. We'll get a link to that in the show notes because that sounds fascinating. Those, those guys are doing some pretty crazy mad science in their work. So you're taking WebTorrent forward, and you've you, you've got an LLC around it now. Is that something? You're oh yeah. About? As we've been making WebTorrent a more uh, featureful Torrent client, and you know, trying to make it more of a real thing that actually works for users, 
part of what we realized we needed to do is build a desktop client. Because part of the vision, right, is to, is to make the browser be an equal peer to all of the desktop torrent clients that are out there today. And so we need the desktop torrent clients to speak WebRTC because that's the only networking like protocol that we can really do in the browser that's peer-to-peer. A couple of torrent clients have actually added WebRTC support so that they can talk to, talk to WebTorrent running in a browser, but not all of them have. So Vuz has added it, and this video player app by Mathintosh called Playback has, has added it. But we didn't want to wait for more people to add it, and so we thought it would be a good idea to just build our own desktop torrent client that can talk to, that can talk to WebTorrent running in the browser and can also talk to all of the other torrent clients out there. So we called that WebTorrent Desktop, and it's an Electron app that is built with web technologies like HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. It's also using the same exact code base as WebTorrent in the browser. The way the web, the WebTorrent library works is actually pretty cool. It, it detects the capabilities of the environment that it's running in. So if it's running in a browser, it'll realize, oh, I can talk to WebRTC peers. And if it's running in Node, it'll realize, well, it can talk to normal peers using TCP and UDP because Node supports those networking capabilities. But if it's running in Electron, it's actually really great because Electron supports all three because Electron is just Node plus Chromium. So if you drop the WebTorrent script into an Electron app, you can actually talk to both types of peers right out, right out of the box. Oh, that's clever. So you're getting a whole lot for free when using Electron here rather than having to implement everything and bolt it all together. Yeah, it's the same exact code base. It's really great. And so, so basically all WebTorrent Desktop is is the front end for the WebTorrent library. And it's kind of a traditional torrent client. But we tried to rethink the UI a lot because we, we think that like a lot of the existing torrent clients out there are kind of lacking in innovation in the UI area at least. And they look kind of like very tab like very tabular data format, you know, like a, like it looks like a lot of statistics for for kind of super nerds about like the state of your torrent swarm and your number of seeders and the number of you know like you can get graphs of like you know the the historical number yeah. of peers you've connected to in the country they're they're from nerdy. all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Very nerdy, yeah. No, the software it's all great software. There are a lot of the torrent clients out there are really great and they're really fast and you know stable and awesome. But but we were trying to do something kind of new and make it more of a, a modern uh, interface. So what we actually do is we de- we'll, we'll actually detect like a poster photo from, from your torrent if there's an image or some kind of file in there that we can generate a poster from and we'll show that in a really nice format and we'll put, we put a big play button. If the torrent contains some kind of streamable media, whether that's an audio book or a, a video file or something like that, and so you can and do, just do you do click. that thing that, that Peerflix does, which, which is prioritizing the, the chunks to play in real time as it's coming in? Yes, that's right. That's, that's such a clever hack. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's actually kind of it was controversial at one point in the torrent community, like whether you should actually fetch things in sequential order or not. But I think that that debate's kind of been solved. It's proven that it's not really an issue if, you're, if you have a, a healthy swarm and you have enough peers. The way that BitTorrent peers trade pieces with each other is in this tit-for-tat model where I'll help you if you help me kind of thing. But, but once, a, once a torrent's been kind of well-seeded enough and it's not, no longer new and the ratio between seeders and leechers has gotten to a good state, then you get into this situation where most of the time you're just connected to seeders and they're just giving you data indiscriminately. They don't even care. Like, that you, that you, that there's no way that you as a downloader can help them because they already have the whole file. So you're just getting stuff for free. And so on most torrent swarms, you actually have such an excess capacity of seeders that... It doesn't really affect the health of the swarm for you to just get it in, in order. I guess most of, the, most of the time people are not starting a stream at the same time, so it's the out-of-order starting times. It adds to that as well. Yeah, I mean, it does slightly increase the chance that you're going to have a swarm that ends up with pieces disappearing. Like, let's say, you know, the very end of a, of a video file gets downloaded last, or maybe not at all if the person stops torrenting you could get into a situation where that, that piece just disappears entirely. And so that's, that's one area where like the rarest first strategy, which is the normal way it works, where people try to always download the rarest piece first, works really well because mm-hmm. it ensures that you always have roughly an even distribution of pieces downloaded in the network. But now we're getting to the weeds about how torrents work. But let's yeah. just say that it works well. It works really well. You can push play and it just everything just streams. And we've actually gotten the Internet Archive to to have them add support for WebTorrent to their torrent files. And they just had to make a little change to the torrent files that they publish. And, and now 10 million Internet Archive torrents will actually work in the browser with WebTorrent and in WebTorrent Desktop as well, which is pretty cool.
Impressive. Oh, yeah. Those, oh, yeah. And to, to actually answer your question about the LLC, the LLC is actually just legal like formality that we, we set up after or before launching the desktop application because we wanted to just make sure that if if some some overzealous copyright owner or somebody does, who doesn't understand how, how torrent clients work tries to you know tries to, to go after us or something that there's there's actually a, like a legal entity that's running this and that's running the show but we don't have any plans to to try and you know profit off of WebTorrent or anything like that. We want to keep it ad-free, keep it completely open source, free software, and just be really minimalist and and simple. Because a lot of the other Torrent clients are not that. They come bundled with ads and and even sometimes malware in some cases, or, or at least adware and toolbars and things like that. So we don't want to we don't really ever want to go down that path. We just want to make a really lightweight, simple, secure Torrent client that works well. And we want people to download it on its own merits, not because they want to be able to talk to web peers. And if we get enough downloads, then then we'll have this nice number of desktop torrent clients that can talk to browsers. And we've actually had a pretty good success so far. We have about 100,000 installs so far. Good numbers. Very good. Well, let's move on, uh, change of topic, to an area that I think probably the, um, the our audience is probably more familiar with your work, which is in standard, standard JS, the code linting tool. I'm fascinated by this simply because of the its popularity and the way that it has spread so quickly and the way that it has managed to extinguish a significant portion of our syntax wars that we seem to never be able to escape. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about Standard, where that came from and why you think it's been such a success? It's kind of a crazy story, I think. I never expected it to get the adoption that it got and and it, it, it really just started as a simple way f- for for me to have an easier time uh, reviewing PRs to the WebTorrent project. Because I would get these really good pull requests from people and they would have like a good change, you know, a bug fix or a new feature or something that was great. But then the person submitting the PR, whether intentionally or not, they would just kind of go in and maybe they would change a bunch of the style for no reason or, or you know, oh, I added, I added uh, you know, semicolons to the end of every every line in the, in your in your project you know you're welcome i fixed it for you kind of thing it's like you know no please send that as a separate pr because i i want to i want to merge your your real change but i, I don't want to you know i want to separate the, the the style discussion from the the feature that you're that you're trying to add yeah this is a, a perennial <laughs> problem for for javascript developers we all have our own styles and we feel strongly about them we all seem to have trouble adapting to other people's styles because it's so much variety yeah, I mean the the right thing to do is to just re- kind of respect the style of the of the file or the, the project that you're inside of. But sometimes people, you know, even unintentionally, will will just do something a different way just out of habit. Then that leaves the maintainer of a project with a difficult situation. They either can can comment in line every time there's an you know a, a style error and tell the person like, oh, could you please fix this up? That's not a very good option because now you're basically you're you're, you're taking somebody who's who was trying to help you. They were trying to they were trying to fix a problem in your software and you're basically telling them to go do more work. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's definitely one, one way to do it, but it, it ends up, you know, half of the time the person doesn't, doesn't come back because they, they, they forgot about it or they're like, oh, I'm not going to do that. It's not too much work. Or they actually don't know how to update the, you know, rebase and force push the pull request and, and do that whole GitHub, you know, mumbo jumbo to, to update the pull request. So then basically, the, I think the right thing for a maintainer to do, at least in my opinion, this is what I was doing for a long time on WebTorrent, is to basically say, thanks for the, for the pull request. This is, this is great. You merge it, and then you go in afterwards with, a, with another commit, and you just kind of, you know, you fix it up. Or you could just YOLO and just say, I don't care. I'm like, I'm just going to merge it, you know, and it's fine. We'll just have different styles, and not, we won't worry about it. That's also another approach. And so what I would do is I would just go in and fix it up, and just, you know, I would take the burden of that work. I just kind of got tired of it after a while and thought, you know, well, why don't I just use a linter? Because there's there are great linters out there like like JS Hint and ESLint and things like that. So I just add one to the project and, and be done with it. Then they'll know when they run npm test that they need to make some style changes. And, you know, in that way, the code, the code base stays in a really good state. And then I started thinking, well, okay, I have like, you know, 10 or 20 different modules that I need to add ESLint to in order to actually enforce this style across all of the projects. And that just... Seems uh, it seems kind of silly to have to go and add a .eslint rc file with you know a hundred lines of of 
configuration to so many different repositories and, and then to try to keep those in sync if, if we ever changed a rule in one of them or whatever, made a tweak here or there. And so it made sense to just put all that into its own module and then to make all of the projects just depend on that single module and we could, you know, we could version it and the module could evolve in one place. Every project that used that module would, would get all of the, the style changes for free. So I just did that. I just put an ESLint file into a, into a new repo. I just kind of codified the existing style that, that WebTorrent was using. And it was my own personal style. <laughs> and then created a little command line tool where you can just run it. And it, it, it'll either give you a, no errors or you'll get a bunch of errors and you'll get an exit code of negative one so that, or, or one so that your, your uh, CI tests will fail uh, if you're using CI. And that's basically it. And I think, I guess, the most, probably the most important reason why it took off, I think, is probably the name, which was kind of an afterthought, because uh, I almost called it like WebTorrent Linter or something silly like that, you know, something just that described exactly what it did, which was going to be to lint WebTorrent's repos. But then I thought, well, actually, I had, a, I had a friend, Matt Bell, who had just showed me a script that he wrote that could go through NPM and show you all of the available package names, and it would try a lot of dictionary words in order of popularity, and it would show you kind of like oh, you know, this, this English word hasn't been taken, you know, you can use it as your module name. And so I, I actually took his script, and I ran it. I was looking at all the possible names I could pick, and I found one that sounded cool. It was policy. I almost called it policy. There's another one called enforcer. <laughs> and then I saw standard, and I was like, oh, great, this is awesome. If I call it standard, there's definitely going to be some people <laughs> who, who, think, who think it's funny, you know, and go, oh, yeah, this is, this is so not standard. Because I knew the style was a little bit controversial in that it omitted semicolons. And so I kind of picked the name standard because I thought it would be a little bit funny and some people would get a chuckle out of it. Uh, I've, seen, really... I've seen some ranting about it. It's pre- it is pretty funny to, to watch people go on about it. I, 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 it does remind me a little bit, though, of a couple of years ago, Rick Waldron published what he called idiomatic JavaScript. And at the time that that came out, it was like the furthest from my particular preferred style. It was like the opposite extreme. And I thought, how dare you call it idi- idiomatic? Um, this is not <laughs> idiomatic to me. And then you come out with this thing called standard. It's pretty much the same thing. I have seen some people get pretty upset about it, but other people just embrace it. There's also a package that has been published called semi-standard by someone else that I think is, is actually quite popular as well. And that, that's the same, but with semicolons, isn't it? Yeah, that was actually published as a joke as well. And now it's actually <laughs> used by people, serious people, like serious companies, Fortune 500 companies and stuff, which I find absolutely hilarious. It is, it is. Um, yeah, the guy who published that, his username is Flett. He definitely published it as a troll. He commented, you know, he commented the URL of his, his the repo in a in a thread that was like, you know, an issue thread that was like a huge flame war going on on the standard repo, and everybody was like, you know, posting like you know applause emojis and things like that. And then actually, people t- actually use it now. So and he maintains it, and it's actually a serious project now. So it's <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. It's I, what great. fascinates me is this is the way that it's as if we've got tired of having these arguments, and now that we have a tool that is simple enough and that applies some opinion. It's like, okay, look, we, we don't have the energy to have these silly arguments. Let's just use this thing and move on. And I've seen that happen countless times in open source, but also in, in, in closed source things where it's like, it just, we just, we use standard because we don't want to have those arguments. <laughs> so do you think yeah. it's just the fact that you've asserted an opinion in a simple to digest way? Or is there something about the opinions that you've expressed in, the, in that package you think has, been, has, has made tra- caused traction? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, so if you if you look at like, so why I created it was to be able to not have to have a ton of different hundred line JSON files in a ton of repos. That was the original reason. That's a good reason. That's that's actually even if you don't like the standard style, if you have your own, if you're using your own ESLint, your own ESLint configuration at your company or on your own projects, I highly recommend just putting putting that into its own module and calling it whatever you want, and depending on that. That's, that's, that's just actually a really great idea. That way you don't have to, have to manually keep these files in sync. You know, that was kind of the original impetus. But I think that a lot of the value people have gotten out of it is, is like you've said, it's been just this, this idea of, we don't want to discuss these things. Let's just go with something that's reasonable. And a lot of the decisions that you make in a style guide anyway are just kind of like, you could do a coin toss for some of them. You know what I mean? Some of them are really important and do affect, like, do affect correctness. And there, there are a lot of, of, you know, people who say you should use triple equals instead of double equals because of correctness. I mean, you're, you're, it is possible to, to, to use double equals correctly, but it's, it's just a little bit more confusing to beginners the way that the, some of the coercion happens. So there's the, these, these decisions you can make that are based on, on what is likely to result in the average developer writing correct code. 
but then there are a lot of a lot of the decisions are just like a toss up and you just should just pick something reasonable i think that's where a lot of the unexpected value has come from for people is yeah being able to just say like let's skip the debate let's just focus on getting things done let's focus on actually shipping software that that helps our users and and not and not spend our time you know having to to debate the merits of whether we should put a space after after the name of a function in the opening paren or not you know but I do think that the, the, the decisions are mostly reasonably good decisions, otherwise it wouldn't have gotten the adoption that it's gotten. And another so, interesting dynamic you found out, I discovered this for myself, is I, I thought, okay, you, you have this way in standard that where you can you have an inheritance mechanism for the JS hint rules. Sorry, not JS hint, ES lint rules. And I figured, okay, I'll take the standard package and I'll extend those rules and add my own just to you know make it a little bit more comfortable for me. I started doing that work and I realized that there's just so much in that you can change in ESLint any JavaScript in general that I just gave up and I thought I can't I can't be bothered doing this I've got better things to do uh, so I, I recently converted a package to standard that was completely different style but I, and in the process I picked up a whole lot of of bugs it was someone else's project that I've taken over maintaining picked up some you know variables that weren't used some that weren't that weren't declared properly and all those sort of things and then that thing of of being able to say to people who pull request in look that there's a there's a tool here it's run you npm test it's part of that you you should just do that it takes a lot of burden off yeah i mean i've actually caught a ton of errors adding standard to some of my older repos with regards to not handling the error variable in node so if you have a callback that and you know you do the error first callbacks and if you don't handle the error the error variable you don't check it then standard will warn you for that which is really great that's nice yeah um, yeah, but that's all. That all comes from ESLint, by the way. So I shouldn't get any credit for that. ESLint is a great project, and uh, all the really difficult stuff is happening in that project. And then you know, standard is literally just a config file, basically, and and a little bit of a little bit, couple of extra custom rules that we that we wrote. But it's basically all the magic is in ESLint. It's it's true. ESLint is is a magical project. It's such a, a huge revolutionary step up from JS Hint, which was which was good when you compare JS Hint to JS Lint. But then ESLint comes along and it's something else altogether. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing. So all credit to Nicholas Zagas for that. Well, moving on, let's talk a bit about the Node Foundation because you, along with Ashley Williams, are actually a, a representative of the Node Foundation's individual members. Can you tell us how that works and what it is that you uh, are trying to do on the Node Foundation board? So the Node Foundation exists to kind of... Uh, be the legal steward of the node project and kind of, you know, it's this community run organization that is not owned by any individual company, but companies can, can have a membership on the, on the board if they basically become sponsors of the node project. The node board decided to create a couple of, of seats on the board to, to be held by members of the node community so that the, the board wouldn't be composed entirely of representatives from companies, right? Because there are a lot of, of companies using node, but there are also lots of just individuals and small companies and, uh, and you know, hackers and, and you know, hardware hackers, peer-to-peer hackers, people using it in education, just a lot of different users that are not represented by, by corporations. Now, I think that was originally the, the idea behind the individual member seats. And when I heard about it, I was actually encouraged by you, Rod, to run for it. That's right. I remember that. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> You were like, you should check this out and maybe maybe run. And so I, I, I thought about it. And the, the thing is, the, the the board is, it's not a technical it's not a technical position, right? I mean, we make decisions about funding, like what to do with all the money that the sponsors donate to the to the project, and and the interaction with the and there's a bit of interaction in the form of you you Rod are the, are the technical the representative from the technical steering committee that actually makes the technical decisions for Node and all of Node Core. And so the the board actually just it's a very kind of political-ish position, I feel like, but it's it's one way that I, I feel like I can do, do do my part in trying to keep Node awesome and just like kind of keep things like sane and make sure that there's a bit of representation from the community. And that's how I've, I've been thinking about it. I've been trying to actually, along with Ashley, we've been trying to to get some of the funding that the, the Node Foundation's raised from all these companies to get spent on, on kind of community initiatives in the form of potentially a community grant. That's still in the works and that hasn't happened yet. That's kind of what I think would be a good contribution to the Node Foundation from Ashley and I. 
I think I think maybe that would be a good show get, to get you and Ashley on to talk about the, that when um, it's when it's sorted out because everyone that I've spoken to and mentioned it to is quite excited by the idea. So I think you're on a on a, a winning path there if you can figure out the all the the details that need to be sorted out for it to for the mechanics to work. So that's that's an exciting thing. And I, I, for me, I'm I'm glad to see both you and Ashley finding ways to contribute into that board because. It, it is a little bit stuffy, you know. It's it's got a lot of old hands that have been around open source foundations for a while, and and Node is trying to do and be something new, and so to have that that energy in there is is quite helpful. I think it's great to have you on there. I actually think it would be interesting to hear from you a little bit about what it's like to be in both the TSC and the foundation. Actually, maybe that could be another show too, a show about the foundation or something. Yeah. I mean, because you kind of have both hats. I do, and I, they're very heavy, and I wear them all the time. <laughs> uh, okay, moving on. So we, we don't have a whole lot of time left, so let's let's try and, and get through some of these things that we've got down. But I want to talk to you a little bit about what your ideal job or, you know, what, what does tech mean to you in, in, in terms of what you want to be doing with it? Because I've had a few discussions with you about this in the past, and from what I understand, you, you're leaning more towards the the idealism of the, the you know, digital nomads lifestyle that we see Dominic Tyre and Substack applying to their lives. Is that something that you're, you know, you're leaning towards and, and, and where, where do you see yourself going into the future? Like what are you trying to achieve for yourself? I, I don't know what I think about all this stuff. I honestly keep changing my opinion constantly about it. I mean, I keep evolving it because I have like a foot in so many different communities. Like I, I mean, there's the whole like you know Stanford kind of academia environment. Then there's the 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 startup ecosystem, which I was part of for a while when I was doing pure CDN, and you know like the tech incubator kind of thing. And then there's and there's like the mad scientist, you know, digital nomad, whatever you whatever you want to call it, lifestyle of of, of some people in the node community that's also really appealing. And I kind of have a foot in all. I don't have three feet, but I have a foot in multiple. <laughs> these three different environments and then I've, I've even worked at you know at, at a big company like yahoo so i know what that's like and i don't i don't know i keep i keep changing my my opinion on it i i think there's 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 benefits to all these different lifestyles and i don't want to like be too opinionated i remember i remember once i was ranting i remember where we where we were we were on a, we were on a bus i think it was after NodeConf adventure one year and i was i was like loudly complaining about jobs and how jobs are terrible or something. And you, I think you, Rod, yeah. <laughs> yes, you, you, Rod, you turned around and you were like, you were at the front of the bus and you turned around and you, I can't remember what it was, but you were just, you just like snapped at me. You said something kind of snappy. You were like, you know, I, I can't remember what it was. It was something about like, something about, well, maybe you should just go and whatever, uh, do, do X. Do you remember what you said? I don't remember. But was- uh, I think, well, I think the point I was making back then, was, so, so I've got this thing about, about work where, People talk about work-life balance, and and my ideal for for work is that it is part of your life, and that you're balanced in that you are doing something that you find fulfilling, and it's not a chore to go and do. And I think the, my comments were simply in that because um, what I heard was was you drawing a sharp distinction between jobs and what you want to be achieving, but rather you're trying to find something that you that you find fulfillment in. I guess my question here is, I'm, I'm interested in this because I see a lot of young people, particularly your age and younger, in the same sort of quandary. And I, and I, I don't know if it's a millennial thing or, or what it is, but trying to figure out what, what ideal work looks like, um, particularly with the kinds of freedoms and flexibility we have in the tech industry. We're very privileged with you know, the kinds of positions we can have, the kind of income we can make if we want to, and the options that we have available to us. But there's still this a significant amount of uncertainty about what to do. You know, where 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 do you how do you balance your idealism about what you want to be doing with your life mm-hmm. and making a difference to the world with the realities of having to survive and make money and live somewhere? It's an interesting question, I, and I, I'm I'm interested in hearing perspective yeah. on that. I mean, so a lot of the people I know who've worked at big companies have been disappointed with the experience in some way or another. I, I mean, I don't I don't think it's just a millennial thing, I, I, but I. In that, I think a lot of people are disappointed with their jobs. If you look at if you look at some statistics in the U.S. about like you know how many people enjoy their jobs, it's it's a really low number. It's really sad, I think, and particularly in software. I mean, we have the ability to work from anywhere, 
you just need a laptop and an internet connection and the ability to communicate with your team with modern tools. And the open source community has shown that you can get a lot of work done, a lot of really great work done, even though you don't, you've never even met the, the people that you're working with using things like GitHub and, and, you know, and, and other asynchronous communication tools. I, I kind of want to see more companies like embrace that and have a little bit more, I guess, variety there so you don't have to like live in you know one or two or three big cities in the U.S. and work it in one particular kind of environment. I think that would help a lot because I have I have so many friends who are working you know have worked at companies and they've been making you know good money and then they they just they 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 save up some money and they quit because they they just don't they they would rather do nothing and live on their savings for a little while and like bounce back and forth between like work and not working than like to just keep working. Uh, at, at some of these places, and I, I think this is a this is a big challenge for companies, for new new companies, particularly companies that want to attract young talent, and and we've faced that at NodeSource as well. We, we go through the same things, and we've seen we've seen the challenges that GitHub has had trying to do this because they're trying to they're trying to find a way to mesh good business practices with the kinds of flexibility that people really want out of work, and so this is this represents a really big challenge, I think, for the the near future for for particularly tech companies. I, I think that's right. I think one thing that we should mention too here is that I think part of the appeal of the of the digital nomad lifestyle is is the freedom and the flexibility that you just can't have when you have a, a traditional traditional job that requires you to be in one place. And especially if it's if that means you have to live in the Bay Area. Because you you have this situation where you you make you're making a lot of money. Objectively, you're making a, like a lot of money compared to what people make in other countries and around the world. But yet you you end up spending half of it on your rent, and you end up getting kind of sucked into this culture of of, of an expensive lifestyle, where you end up going out to dinner and spending money like kind of kind of carelessly on you know things like Uber and 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 like going out to a random restaurant that you know ends up costing fifty dollars, so on and so forth. I've never really been into that myself, but I, I have had a, a friend who was working at Google and was telling me that you know he basically spends all of his money every month and doesn't have any savings, even though he's making a ton of money. And so he actually isn't increasing his freedom very much. You know, he he'll work there for for a bunch of years and then he'll he'll end up even though he's you know making a ton of money, he'll end up being in a situation where if he were to lose his job or wanted to to leave for for a health reason or something like that or for family reason, he wouldn't be able to to pay his rent the next month. I don't want to judge people too much, but I do think there's this other option that some people have discovered. Some people in my generation, and you know, in particular, have discovered, which is you can just keep your your burn rate, so to speak, low. Spend as little money as you can, and and be creative about your living situation if you can do that. And then that allows you to just not work as much, or, or to be to be more uh, discerning about what work you do do. Actually, there's this great quote from Substack about this. I was hanging out with him, and he some somebody. Somebody was talking about work with him, and he said, "It's amazing how much work you can get done when you don't have a job." <laughs> Meaning, <laughs> that's so substack, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is, it, it, being being unemployed doesn't mean that you're not being a productive citizen. I mean, Substack is one of the most productive people I I know in like that I've ever met, and he does he does consult for different people from time to time and do do things like that. And but I think most of his freedom comes from being being just really minimalist about his lifestyle. I don't know. I think that's just a really interesting option. It's very attractive to, to a lot of people. Yeah, I think Dominic Tarr is literally living and working on a boat these days. He's got it all wired up so he can do everything from there. Right. I mean, you know, if you actually think about it, like you can do what Dominic does if you're willing to to live on a boat. And it's not, bad, it's not a bad life. I mean, you get a waterfront view. And in the Bay Area, it's only $100 to have a, a slip where you can park your boat. And you can buy a sailboat for you know under it's the price of a car or less. Uh, you're allowed you to live uh, in it though. There are a, a limited number of permits for that in the Bay Area, at least. So I think it's a bit of a of a hassle to to get one of those. But you can stay on your boat a couple of times, like three times a week or something like that, and then maybe more if you if you're friendly with the the harbor master, you know, so on and so forth. There are also a lot of people, a couple people I know, who are part of this small community of people in the Bay Area who are living out of RVs. And that's really interesting. They pay a couple hundred dollars a month to park their RV in, in SF. I think it's like maybe $400 a month or something like that. And then they, they can move around if they want to and go to different places. 
don't know. This I just find this really interesting and very very eye opening. A different way of looking at things. Yeah, I think the the rent crisis happening up there in Silicon Valley is probably going to push more people to creative options. Mm-hmm. Either that, yeah. or we'll see people scattering all over the place. It'll be interesting to watch over the next few years. I mean, it all depends on what you're trying to trying to get out of work. I mean, I think of it as well. I think I guess I think of like the goal of of acquiring money is to enable yourself to have more freedom. Some people view money as this like dirty thing or this bad thing or whatever, you know, don't like to think about it very much. But I think the right way to think about it is it's, it's a strategic mindset of how do I like best use this asset to give myself the most flexibility and more options in the future. And so, I don't know, I, I just think this create these creative ways of doing things are really cool and want to want to do that more myself. Let's try and and move towards an ending here. Sure. I, w- I want to talk about. I want to get your opinions on advice for new and upcoming developers, people who who were looking to level up their skills and their investment in in their technology of choice. Your thoughts on what's on the horizon for our industry? What are some areas that devs might think about focusing on? Um, I'm you know I'm not asking you to predict the future here accurately. Just just what you see in terms of trends and where people might want to look for inspiration? I'm, I'm probably a bad person to ask this question to, I feel like, because I I tend to just go and do my own thing, and then that takes me wherever it takes me, and I, I, don't, I usually don't follow the latest trends. And honestly, I, like, I still haven't built a project in React or in, 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 or in the thing that was popular before that, you know, Angular or whatever, and, and so on and so forth. So as far as, like, Things in the in the JavaScript community that are like trendy or yeah, well, not in the, the short term because thing. like JavaScript front end frameworks that's like short term isn't there? But what about things like do you see RTC WebRTC being becoming something much bigger or is is peer to peer something that is going to actually take off one day? Because peer to peer technology has been around for a while, but they haven't managed mm-hmm. to find traction. Do you see that actually happening? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a huge new renewed interest in in this kind of stuff. I j- just went to this conference called the Decentralized Web Summit that took place in, at the Internet Archive in San Francisco, and uh, like Tim Berners Lee, you know, in, inventor of the web, and Vint Cerf, one of the creators of the of TCP/IP and the, and the internet, were there, and and all sorts of of people who were working on uh, decentralized web tech, you know, from like IPFS to to blockchain things to like Ethereum and naming systems like Namecoin and all sorts of of, of, of people who are in this space were there and there's this like palpable excitement in the air that I haven't felt at a conference in a long time. It was really cool to see all these people who are actually shipping stuff that works, that are real peer-to-peer systems that you can use today that help to like make the web a bit more decentralized and make it more like, you know, the internet of, of the old days where anybody could participate by just, you know, plugging in a computer and joining the network instead of like these big centralized silos that we have now with, with a lot of the web where kind of all of our data is controlled by three or four megacorps. That's kind of exciting. Before, I guess before I went, to this, went, went, to, went to, to this conference and saw it, I kind of thought that a lot of this stuff was kind of pie in the sky and maybe not actually real. After going there and meeting, meeting people, the people who are working on, on a lot of the projects and seeing that it's actually real, I think that there's definitely going to be big changes coming to, to the way the web works if, if these projects are successful and if they have their way. I think that's kind of exciting. What about in general, do you have hints for, for developers with regard to your favorite authors or speakers or, or things to read up on, technologies to poke, have a poke at to understand tech better? Do you have any advice on any of that stuff? Mm. I would say that you should, if you're just learning JavaScript, you should start with Node School workshops and then you should kind of have a project in mind that you want to build and just try and go for it and, and ask questions and constantly google things as you go and you can basically answer any question you have about programming by just by typing it into google you know how do i do this in in javascript and you'll find some code that you can copy and paste and the best way to learn is to just dive headfirst into it and maybe find a find a regular meetup that you can go to once a month to ask other people the best ways that they They've discovered to do the things that you're trying to do on your project. So, so when you get stuck, you'll have somebody in person that you can you can talk to. I wouldn't try to read a book about JavaScript or about software and 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 think that if you just you know if you just read this book from beginning to end that you'll you'll know how to do things. I used to try to do that whenever I wanted to learn a new language. I would just read the 
you know, read the best book according to Amazon from like front to back, and then I would try to go and program in it, and it never worked because I'd forget everything. I need to reference back into the book again. So I think you should use books to just kind of get an idea for what's possible and what the different terminology is, like the high-level ideas, and then you should just Google everything as you go when you actually need to do specific things. And you should just read source code from, from popular packages. Just, just open up the GitHub and just look at the code and, and try and understand what's going on. Find small NPM modules that do a really simple thing and just look at the code and see what it's doing. You know, Like, open up the, the once package on NPM, which just lets you, lets you take a function and make it a function that only runs once. So if you call it five times, it will only run the first time. Something really trivial like that. Just, just open up the source code and look at it and see what it's doing. Just have a, have a, have that kind of curiosity. Just dive right in and, and try to understand things, and you'll you'll understand things in no time. One of the most important things I did early on when I was trying to make JavaScript my primary language and like get really good at it versus what I was doing before, which is just using whatever was cool or whatever I happened to have heard of just before the project I was working on, was I, I opened up the uh, jQuery source code and I just re- I just like looked at it. It was really well commented and. And I, I like learned a lot just by just just trying to understand it. Highly recommend doing that. Pick your pick your favorite project, and if it's too hard, pick and try finding another project and and looking at the code for it. And perhaps to couple those 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 last two topics, maybe a recommendation is for people to go and have a look at WebTorrent and and go through all of the various packages that it depends on because there's a huge range of these torrent related packages that are quite interesting in by themselves. And experimenting with them is probably worthwhile. So I'd, I'd recommend that, I think. I think a lot of this stuff by like Substack and by um, Max Ogden, by Mathintosh, by like you, Rod, my stuff, probably I'm forgetting a ton of other people, but like there's, there are some people who write pretty clear, simple, like single purpose modules that are really easy to understand because they just do one thing. So you can kind of just dive into those and they're usually like only, you know, 100 lines or so. That's probably a good place to start if you're trying to understand like how to, how to write modern Node.js code or just JavaScript in general. Okay, well, I think there's, there's plenty of, of meat there for people to pick up on. We might round it out now with some plugs. So these are not necessarily related to anything we've talked about, but just an opportunity to, to raise awareness of interesting things that we find interesting. So for us, you've got a few things listed. Why don't you tell us about them? I'm going to plug Electron which is what we use to build WebTorn desktop. And if you haven't used it, it's a really great way to build native apps using what you already understand and know, which is web technologies. You can build a really professional, really nice looking native app using Electron with like all the things that you would expect a native app to be able to do, like notifications and auto-updating and you know integration into the dock or the start menu, menu items, crash reporting, all the kinds of things that make for a really solid desktop app. And particularly the auto updates are really great. And that all comes for free with Electron. And so, yeah, just just with your existing JavaScript skills, you can build really polished and really nice native apps. And if you don't believe me, take a look at WebTorn Desktop. I think it's really quite a nice app. The other thing I wanted to plug is this thing by Substack called Captivating Portal, which is a pretty cool mad science hack that he did which is a way to create a hotspot from your computer that you can name the same name as a popular hotspot that a lot of people have probably joined, like Starbucks Wi-Fi or something. And then it'll, when people are in the, in, in, in the area of your computer, their, their laptop will automatically connect to the Wi-Fi because it has the same name as something they've connected to before. And then when they try to visit sites, you can serve them like whatever HTML you want. Kind of like how captive portals work when you when you're asked to like log in or agree to some terms on a Wi-Fi hotspot, you can basically you can do that with whatever page you want, and then you can make it permanently cached with app cache, which means that you basically took over the domain of of whatever site the user visited and permanently cached it in their browser, which is really evil, <laughs> really really evil. But it's it's crazy that it's possible and it's pretty cool and eye opening, I think. <laughs> Okay, no, that's, I understand now why the documentation is pretty light in that project. That's that's awesome. Don't don't actually go and do it, but but look at it and think about it and think about security. Oh, and I should mention, if you have a, a website and you want your site to not be not be vulnerable to this, then you should go and look at HTTPS strict transport security, which is a way that you can add a header 
to your HTTP response from your website and tell the browser that even if the user doesn't type HTTPS colon slash slash in front of your domain, if they just go to the HTTP version, the browser will actually change it to HTTPS before it makes the request, which prevents things like this from working. And you can even go a step further if you want, and you can actually submit your site to Google Chrome, and they will hard code in the domain of your site into the Chromium code base, so that even if the user has never been to your site before, the first time they type in your domain and visit the HTTP version, the browser will intercept it and, and send them to the HTTPS version. So they're, they're, they will literally never allow HTTP insecure requests to be made, which is really cool. My plugs then, mine are a bit, little bit boring, but they're node related as well. So uh, again, I want to plug node version five being end of life. No more updates for node version five. You should probably be upgrading or downgrading to node version four, which is LTS. So get off node version five. The other thing is the V8 inspector protocol that Google made a bit of a fuss about recently is actually going to land in node version six, possibly even before this podcast goes out publicly. So then one of the next versions of Node version 6 will have this built in. It's still considered experimental, but you can actually use, you can run Node in this new debug mode and inspect it from within Chrome DevTools. And you can also, this should be support soon for WebStorm and also I believe Visual Code, Visual Studio Code. So this is meant to be a, not just thing, a thing for Chrome, but beyond that, but we get, it, we get this um, nice protocol as part of it. So check that out. It's not going to be officially documented, so you'll have to dig for a bit for that. The next one is V8 version 5.1 has been out for a while, and we are trying hard to get that into Node version 6. I'll be writing an article about this soon, but keep an eye out for that because we're trying to get it in in a way that doesn't break everyone's stuff. So this is mainly about native add-ons and making sure that when we release a new version Node version 6, with this upgrade in it that those native elements continue to work. We think we've got it right, we just need to do some more testing and then hopefully we'll be able to deliver more frequent V8 upgrades in stable versions of Node, which is exciting to a lot of people. So that's my plug. So thank you for Ross. I've got some upcoming events to read out here. We've got some things coming up in the next couple of months. OS and Fields Conference, 22nd and 23rd of July in Seattle. Cascadia Fest is in August 2nd to 5th in Washington State, cascadiajs.com. JSConf Iceland is August 25th to 26th, jsconf.is. Node Interactive EU is in Amsterdam September 15th to 16th, and Node Interactive North America is in Austin 29th to 30th of November. And there'll be links in the show notes to each of those things. And for us, can you tell us if there's going to be another Arctic JS on sometime? <laughs> we haven't planned it yet. There will probably be another Arctic JS at some point. And where will that where will that probably be located? We'll probably do it in Svalbard again because it's amazing. Svalbard is so cool. So we probably want to go back there. Okay, keep an eye out for Arctic JS then. Okay, well, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for us for joining us and follow NodeUp on Twitter. Sponsor NodeUp, you can email nodeup at gmail.com for more information on how to do that. Sponsoring helps keep these going out. So please do that. And bye for now. Thank you.